1: Welcome to The Science of Success, introducing your host, Matt Bodner.
2: Welcome to The Science of Success, the number one evidence based growth podcast on the internet, with more than a million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, and part of the Self Help for Smart People podcast network. In this episode, we discuss what it means when you mistake being busy with creating results. We take a hard look at time management and examine concrete strategies for carving out more time. We look at the dangerous power of defaults in shaping our behavior and how we can use them to our advantage. And we examine how to have a healthy relationship with your email inbox with our guest, Jake Knapp. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. There's some amazing stuff that's only available to our email subscribers, so be sure to sign up and join the email list today. First, you're going to get an awesome free guide that we created based on listener demand. This is our most popular guide and it's called How to Organize and Remember Everything, which you can get completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide. You got to sign up to find out by joining the email list today. Next, you're going to get a curated weekly email from us every week called Mindset Monday. Our listeners have been absolutely loving this email. It's short it's simple. It's filled with articles, videos, stories, things we have found interesting or fascinating in the last week. Lastly, you're going to get exclusive content and a chance to shape the show. You can help us vote on guests. You can help us change our intro music and much more. You can even submit your own questions to upcoming guests. You'll also have access to exclusive giveaways that only people who are on the email list get access to and much, much more. Be sure to sign up and join the email list. There's some incredible stuff, but only subscribers who are on the email list are getting access to this awesome information. In our previous episode, we explored the brain. Are the two halves of the brain really that different? What is this idea of whole brain thinking? How do you get your brain to do what you want it to do? Can we become more right-brained or left-brained if we want to? We also dug into the personal story of our guest, a neuroanatomist who suffered from a devastating stroke and how that experience transformed her worldview with our guest, Dr. Jill Taylor. If you wanna understand how to get your brain to do what you want it to do, listen to that episode. Now for the show. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Jake Knapp. Jake is the New York Times bestselling author of Sprint, He spent 10 years at Google and Google Ventures, where he created the design sprint process and ran it over 150 times with companies like Nest, Slack, 23andMe, Flatiron Health, and more. Previously, Jake helped build products like Gmail, Google Hangouts, Microsoft and Carta, and his work has been featured in TechCrunch, Fast Company, The Wall Street Journal, NPR, and more. Jake, welcome to the Science of Success.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on, Matt.
2: Appreciate it. Well, we're very excited to have you on here today. I'd love to talk about, and and I think we're definitely going to kind of dig into the sprint methodology that you've popularized and really executed for a number of years at Google. But before we dig into that, I'd love to kind of start out and look at, I know you have a new project in the works right now. It's not coming out for, you know, a number of months, but you kind of have a book about, the name is Make Time. And it's kind of about how to prioritize and how to create the time and sort of the focus for the things we really want to get done. So I'd love to hear, you know, what kind of inspired you to create that book? And what are some of the kind of core themes that you want to explore with it?
3: Well, this topic of time is something that I've been thinking about for many years. And it all kind of goes back for me to when my oldest son was born. He's 14 now. But when he was born, I was working at Microsoft at that time. And I realized, my God, I have got to spend my time Better. I got to get better at doing this. And that led me on a long path of experimenting with personal productivity, experimenting with the ways that I did my work, and ultimately with doing the kinds of team practices that led to the design sprint. But along the way to developing the design sprint, which is very much a, a tool for teams and businesses... I ended up thinking a lot about how I could manage my own efforts and energies in the day to have more satisfaction and to feel like I was doing the things that mattered. And my colleague at Google Ventures, who I worked with on developing the design sprint process, this guy, John Zaratsky, he's a time dork just like me. And in fact, we have a blog called Time Dorks, and we've been experimenting with some kind of weird ideas of ways to really get control of the distractions and the busyness that plague the modern world. I mean, they're, they're these amazing technological gifts that we all have access to, or hope, you know, many of us have access to. And, and I've done my share of working on building those tools, but there's a lot to be done to actually make them, really put them in their place so that we can put what we want to do first. And that's what the book is about. And, uh, and to a certain extent, that's what the design sprint process is about too. So they kind of go together.
2: Yeah. I'd love to hear even some of the lessons from time dork you know what have you found obviously today's world there's so many distractions and you know so much noise pulling us away from what's really important how have you personally dealt with a lot of the distractions and kind of enabled yourself to be focused and productive
3: well one of the big things is that we we follow defaults in in life and we kind of have to because it's how you get things done but when i say default i mean like you know, you, if you get a new phone you get a new computer, it's got default software on it. It's got a default, you know, wallpaper image on it. It's got, the phone's got a default ringtone and, you know, you, all those things, when you get the phone, usually most of us, the first thing we'll do is kind of configure the phone to, to look the way we want, you know, download the apps we want and maybe move the ones that we don't want and, you know, put a, photo of our kid or something on the backdrop background and and that's kind of the the first step but in life a lot of the defaults that exist we we might not see them and a lot of them just stick around and they become part of our lives and so for example you start a new job. And I I think, you know, if you're lucky, you start a new job, you're excited about what you're going to be working on. You come in the first day, you're like, all right, let's do this. You got your new email address. You look in your inbox and there's no emails in there because it's a new job. You look at your calendar and there's nothing on your calendar because you're new and you're like, awesome. I'm I'm here to do this. There's something you're excited about, some project. I'm going to, let's do it. And you get into it, and uh, you start talking to people, meeting them. You start getting some one-on-one meetings on your calendar. You start getting some project updates, some stand-ups, some you know all-hands meetings. Pretty soon, the calendar's full of stuff, and it, you can't make room to actually do your work. And the inbox is full of stuff, and whether it's your inbox or Slack or whatever, you you're reacting all the time. In modern life, we call this in the book. The busy bandwagon. There's like this expectation that's built in by default by the tools that we use and the structures that we use in our office culture. And it's also kind of a cultural norm. Like when you ask somebody how they're doing, they say, usually, I'm busy in the United States. They'll say, you know, I'm busy. And that's good. People think like, oh, it's good to be busy. And it is. I mean, it means you have a job, but it's it kind of implies that you're stressed out. And a lot of us are stressed out a lot of the time. And so many of the changes that we talk about in the book and many of the things I've tried to do, and it's hard, but it's questioning those defaults and then trying to say, and I'm a designer, I've been a designer for you know 20 years. And so I try to think like, What's a way to redesign this so that it works well for me, works better for me? To give you an example, on the iPhone, you know, I have an iPhone and the default is you're going to have email on the phone. You're going to have a web browser on the phone. You'll have Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And and I realized several years ago, it's actually six years ago, I was playing with my kids and I had this moment when... I realized that I just was not, I was not present in that moment because I kept looking at my phone. You know, I was, I was checking to see if I had a new email or like, I don't even really know what I was doing, but I had this moment when I was like, Oh my God, like there, my older son was, uh, I think eight, my younger son was just like a baby. And I was like, I've I've seen the older son be a baby and go past that. I know that time passes by in a blink and I'm sitting here And like, I'm this, this moment's going to be gone. And like, why is the phone so important to me? I'm not really consciously choosing to do this. It's just controlling me. And in that moment, I, I said, you know, I can take control of this. I can redesign this. And I deleted Instagram, Facebook, Twitter off the phone. I figured out how to disable Safari off the phone. I deleted the email account, which was really hard for me because I used to work at Gmail. And so, I mean, I've worked on that product. I really love that product, actually. and But I realized like, that's, I don't need to have access to those things all the time everywhere I am. And so one of the new defaults in the world is that we have access to everything all the time. And that's part of what we have to get control of.
2: I love that idea of the busy bandwagon and it's so true it's almost like a badge of honor in today's society to be busy 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 going from here to there and all this stuff going on but I feel like most of the people want to kind of appear busy but they're sort of mistaking busyness with actually creating results
3: Absolutely. And one of the things that's really key in in the book in make time and also in the design sprint process is focus. And it's being proactive and intentional about what the most important thing is, and prioritizing ruthlessly on that one thing. So in make time, we say every day you should pick a highlight at the beginning of the day. And when I, I say highlight, I mean, if I look back at this day when it's over, what would be the highlight of the day? And it could be something that's actually about work. You know, maybe you have some job that you just you gotta get it done, but getting it done will be satisfying because you know that it's it's important, it's urgent, and I've got to I've just got to do it. It'll feel good to know that I got that chunk of that thing done. Or maybe it's something that'll actually bring you joy. So it could just be that, you know, at the end of the day, I want to know that when I was with my family this evening having dinner or when I, you know, took my kid to the playground, whatever it was, I was present during that moment. I I was at full strength too. You know, I had my best energy during that moment. And we think that starting off with that little bit of intention and saying, this is this one most important thing. If you just have one, then you can design your day around it. You can make sure that your energy level is high. You can make sure that your phone is away, that you're not being distracted during that moment. And similarly, in a design sprint, we we would craft each day around one big activity. So I should say briefly what a design sprint is. It's, it's a five-day process. It's highly structured to kind of get rid of a lot of those bad Office defaults and replace them with some really intentional steps that take advantage of things that we learned through the evidence of running the design sprint process over and over again, and also things that we learned from you know, reading about psychology and reading about studies people had done, and really tried to apply. And if you do these steps in this order, you'll basically get good results. You'll eliminate a lot of biases, and you'll basically learn whether your your project is on the right track. and so in the sprint on Monday, you make a, the whole team works together to make a map of the problem. On Tuesday, the team, each person sketches a competing solution. On Wednesday, the team uses a structured process to make a, a decision, although it's not a democratic decision. And on Thursday, you build a prototype. On Friday, you test it. Anyway, it's one thing per day. And so part of that idea of focusing on one thing per day, I've seen work over and over again for all different kinds of teams. I've seen it work also for individuals. And we found that when we applied that every day for ourselves, it just led to greater satisfaction and also greater accomplishments. I mean, you can do the kinds of things that you want to do only if you eliminate you know, 90% of the stuff that we're reacting to that causes that appearance of busyness.
2: I love that the idea of ruthless prioritization and really being very, very kind of cognizant of what our priorities are. Tell me a little bit more, you know, for somebody who feels like they've got so many things going on and they have to do this and that and, you know, family life and all these other things, how can they kind of step back and get clarity about what priorities are truly important?
3: Well, in the book, we have like over 80 different tactics that you can try. And we do not expect anyone to use all 80 tactics because neither John nor I uses all 80. And in fact, some of them are contradictory. There's some things that I have a certain approach to solving a problem that we have in the modern world. And John is a different one. And they actually compete with each other. Like John does all these things to get up really early in the morning and do his highlight first thing before anyone's any like sane person has woken up. And I can't do that. I have kids. There's no way I'm getting up early and actually doing something productive. I got to do that at a different time. And so we talk about like there's no secret solution for everyone, but there are a lot of different things you can try. One thing that I love that's made a huge difference for me is starting off and stack ranking the big things in my life and doing this activity periodically, re-ranking the stack. So for me, it's about saying, okay, what are the the big projects? And I actually list like I mean, and this is going to sound really like Oversimplified, or or maybe even callous, but I'll say family. That's a project, you know. Or writing a book that might be a project, and uh, I might have a project at work. Maybe I just say work as a category as a project, or maybe I'll be a little bit more granular. But I won't go down to like the task level. It's like at a pretty high level, you know. If I'm I'm a runner, so where's running fall on there? And I'll list out these like four or five things that are the biggest things that are going on for me, and then. I put them in order. After listing them out, I, I look at that and I say, "What's the most important thing right now?" And then, what's the second? And what's the third? And what's the fourth? And what's the fifth? And I, I keep this list on my phone, and I'll refer to it periodically. And it's a tiebreaker for me. So. One of the things that's really important is making that decision and saying, like, look, for right now, things are going well with my family. Maybe I'm going to put my family second, actually, which sounds really awful. But there are times when your family comes first and there are times when realistically you've got a big thing going on, something you're trying to do, and, and you need to put most of your effort most of the time into some other project. That's that's OK. Sometimes the family does go on, up there, you know, and obviously they're always near the top of my list if they're not on the top. But it's about where honestly, where does the most of my energy need to go to? right now. And then every day when I'm making a list, I use something that I call a burner list. And actually, if your listeners can search for this post, I wrote a post about this called the burner list. And it's a it's but it's my form of to do list. And my to do list only has two columns. Uh, The left column is My top priority project at that time. So whatever's the number one thing on that stack rank, the right hand column has half of it is the number two project and the other half the bottom of that second column is just miscellaneous stuff. And that's it. If there's any other things that come up, any other tasks, I just have to like tell the person, sorry, I can't do it. I have to say No. And I use that sheet of paper, that physical sheet of paper to limit what I can do. And so it's a combination of those two things, kind of making that list so that I know what the priorities are. And then just saying like, if it doesn't fit on the paper, it doesn't fit in my life. The paper is kind of, I've found that that's actually like a kind of a good representation of what I can pay attention to and do. And so I think it's about finding those kinds of things, starting to figure out where are your, where is the edges of your capacity. And you can use the tricks that I use or some of the other tricks in our book if you like, but it's kind of about that. Knowledge about yourself and figuring out what works, what doesn't work for you, but really where is the boundary of your time. And when you know what's important and you know where the boundary is, then you can do the most important thing and say no.
2: I want to get into how to say no, because I think that's that's such an important skill and one that I feel like in many ways is almost lacking in kind of modern day society. But before we dive into that, I just want to say that I really like the idea of, of kind of just carving out even a little bit of time to get clarity on what you want to focus on you know even 30 minutes a week of just sort of a to borrow the term from charles Duhigg, like a contemplative routine of just saying okay what am i working on what's going on in my life you know where should i be spending my time what's working what's not working just even that tiny activity can sometimes create a lot of clarity
3: yeah and i i've found that like it's things like that Usually they sound good, but they're hard to put into practice. Like it sounds like, you know, God, yeah, you know, I should take some time to contemplate. And it's like I should take some time to meditate. I should take some time to exercise or do these things. But it's really hard to do. And a lot of what we tried to do in, in make time was to take things that are hard to do really for real humans. Because part of the challenge in life is that we hear so much about people like, Elon Musk, who's like the CEO of two companies and like going to Mars and like, you know, and like like Tim Ferriss, you know, Tim Ferriss is like doing all these things, you know, hyper optimizing his body and everything. And we hear the things about these people and it's, that's great. They're impressive. And we can learn from those people, but it can't help at least for me. But sometimes you just feel like, God, I suck. Like I look at what I'm doing and I'm like, man, I haven't launched zero rockets. Like I've, you know, I haven't optimized my muscle tissue like at all today. And that kind of like superhumanity that we're exposed to a lot makes it hard sometimes to even begin with the things that we need to do. But the truth is, I think that most of us, we're not superhuman and we probably don't want to be. I'm not sure that most of us would be happy with those lifestyles. And I think that this kind of a practice of reflecting and deciding what's important can become a part of your routine. And for me, it's the routine is built into, again, to my to-do list. So because I make my to-do list on paper, and I think a lot of people do, and you know, chances are most of your listeners are not going to adopt my form of to-do list. You're welcome to try it, but you probably keep doing some variation of your own thing. But when you rewrite your to-do list, if you do it on paper, that's a powerful moment. That's a moment when you can say, okay, I'm going to put a little bit of structure on this what's the most important project. And if you just write the name of the most important project on your paper and you give that a lot of the space on the paper, and then you write the next most important project below it with a lot of room already eaten up, then you've already done half the job. Like you've already told yourself what was most important. And now by default, you'll fill those things in giving most of your attention, most of your priority to that number one thing. So for me, that's the routine. It's just like, Every time the to-do list gets full, gets a little bit stale, I've crossed a lot of things off and I'm redrawing it, I reconsider what's number one. And in that way, it doesn't feel like this hard to do artificial activity. It's quite natural.
2: And I think in many ways, that strategy is kind of echoed by, you know, in a number of different realms or fields, even people like Tim Ferriss who talk about kind of, you know, your most important task for the day, et cetera. Like even if you can just accomplish the most important thing on your list, oftentimes Just doing that is enough to create meaningful results as long as you've selected the right thing to prioritize.
3: Absolutely. And I think that while in the beginning, for me, it was challenging to figure out each day what was... The number one thing, a part of it is we like to think about the space that's between a task and a goal. So there's it's and I, there's not really a word for it. It's you know, task is very granular, and it is easy in life to get caught up in in reactive tasks because they're so small. When I, somebody you know emailed me and asked me to update this spreadsheet, I'm going to do that. Or somebody you know, I've got to I've got to run this this errand, and it's easy to lose track of the goals, but the goals are so far off that that they're hard to act on you know, and you think like, what's the connection between this task and the goal? So in the book, we talk a lot about the space in between and that's what we call a highlight. We think that what you should try to go for each day is something more than one task. It's something that's that's a meaningful chunk And so you should think in terms of like clearing 60 to 90 minutes. And we think if you can clear 60 to 90 minutes, if you can make that time, and that's kind of where the title of the book comes from, if you can make that time available to yourself, then you can do really remarkable things. And you can feel like you're, you're doing the, you're living the life that, not the life that, you know, you you always talk about putting off. Someday we'll do that. Someday we'll get to that. And you can do that stuff now. You know, it can happen now. And it's really that idea of making time that comes from you know, you're either going to recover that time by literally moving your calendar around. You know, and if you know that 60 to 90 minutes is what you want to get every day, then you start to block it off on your calendar, you know, in advance, you're proactive about it. Or you look ahead and you start to squeeze meetings and push them out of the way. You can kind of bulldoze your calendar or a lot of times we can recover time in our day by being more mindful of our energy or by actually eliminating distractions so much of our time is often destroyed by reacting to email reacting to social media reacting to the news and controlling those things a little bit can also give you time back so we think it's actually you don't you don't necessarily have to be more busy to get more done it's it's sort of about taking more control
2: i really like the idea or the kind of the insight of the space between the task and the goal. Tell me a little bit more about that.
3: This comes from a experience that my, my co-author John had. And he he talks about living in Chicago and the winter in Chicago and feeling like the winter was just this blur of sleet and snow and, you know, freezing commutes. And and that he felt like time was sort of blurring by. And he, and he realized at some point he was like, you know, it's not, it's not just the weather. I actually am just kind of constantly reacting to what's going on in my email inbox. And I have these long-term goals. And he's like, he's like the first thing he tried to do to sort of get out of that rut of what felt like this work blur. And I've certainly I've experienced this like a lot of the years of my life, (laughs) my working life, I couldn't tell you what really happened during those months, you know, because it's just like this work blur of meetings and email. And I think, you know, it's quite natural to have that go by. And we can't remember every single moment of our lives. But you also don't have to totally accept that. Right. So he, he started feeling like the way out of this is long-term goals. I'm going to figure out what my long-term goals are and make sure I'm not just sort of reacting to this forever. And he started thinking about that, those goals, but he felt like there was this gap between those goals, which were really exciting and they were out there in the distance and and what was happening for him every day. And to you know to turn this into a personal story for me, for years, I wanted to write. I wanted to write books and, but it was like something that was this long-term goal and I figured, and I, I never even really defined when someday was, I just, it was in the back of my head. It's like, it's this thing I wanna do someday. I took a creative writing class in college, didn't like my writing very much. I didn't like my own writing and thought, yeah, hey, I don't know if I'm really good at this. I'm gonna keep doing what I know how to do, which is computer stuff. And I put it off and, you know, having that thing as a long-term goal, it's good to know that you have a long-term goal to do something. But if you're not actually working on it, if you're not making taking steps on it, then it effectively doesn't exist. And so for John, the, the switch became figuring out that if he picked one thing to focus on each day... He could build enough meaningful traction on that thing to get something done, to actually start to make meaningful progress on on his goals. And one of his big goals has been sailing. So for him, he was starting to figure out like, OK, what do I need to do to start to get better at sailing so that I'm a more confident sailor? And for me, it was about with writing. It was finally 12 years after I dropped that class in college when I was in I was in my early 30s working at Google. I realized if I don't start writing that book now, like I may never do it. I need to start clearing the time. I need to start making the time to do it every day. And I'm going to start doing it in the evening. And then once I knew that I'm doing that thing I'm so excited about and I'm clearing a meaningful chunk for it, then I was motivated to try to figure out how to make that work, how to create that time. And I think the same was true for John. Once you started to have that goal not be a, a someday far off thing and you started to say, I want to do it now, you, you want to do more than just a little task. You want to do more than just a little piece of it. You want to do something meaningful. And that motivation is part of what makes this whole idea work. It's the same thing with our design sprints. We felt like if a team was trying to make some subtle change in the way they worked, it it's a lot harder but when you know you have one really important thing that you're excited about and you can channel that excitement and then you can it's actually easier to make a bigger change because you're excited you know you're not doing it because you feel like you have to when we talk about exercise we talk about exercise a bit in the book but it's not exercising because you have to do it or because it's going to make you healthy it's because it gives you energy to do the thing you want to do today that's the good that's the reason to do it or you know if you want to eat well it's because Eating well will give you energy to do the thing you want to do today. And I believe that's actually much more powerful for behavior change than talking about, you know, there's a study and people perform this way or that way. If you can actually make a real meaningful connection. And I've seen that happen again and again and again for all kinds of different teams in our sprints that they're able to really muster their best efforts, their best energy and transform the way they work when they're when that is associated with a near-term meaningful chunk of work that's it's more than a task and it gets them on the road to to that goal that they're excited about
2: i think that's a great idea i love the idea of kind of tying goals to or creating sort of meaningful connections to your goals that helps create motivation i'm curious i want to circle back to a, a comment you made earlier which i think is really really important as well which is the fact that there's this kind of opportunity to recover time within our days by spending less time in a reactive state?
3: Yeah. So one of the things that I've noticed happens for me is I wake up in the morning and I want to check my email so bad. I love email. I have loved email since I was a kid. When well, the first time I was, I saw email and I think it's about the first time almost anybody saw email, maybe except for like Al Gore and Surf or something. But like in the early nineties, I was my, I had a friend who's way into computers. He's like, check out this thing. It's called email, and I was amazed. And at first, the only person I could email was my friend Ian. And even even only being able to email one person who lived like you know a couple miles away from me, I was just like, this is fantastic. This is like the best thing ever. I tried to convince girls to talk to me on email. Uh, in high, this is in high school, and which was not effective. Even though I told them it's like this is so cool, it's the future, you guys. But they, they were not into it. But which probably I think had more to do with me than with email. But I couldn't. Eventually, email obviously caught on, and I love. I have loved email for my whole life. I spent years working on the Gmail team, building features for Gmail, and I don't know. I love it. It's just it's amazing. I don't know why. It's just it's really it's really amazing to me. And I think for a lot of people, you know, we we are either tied to it or addicted to it for different reasons. I I actually love it. I just, I think it's a miraculous sort of communication medium. But when I wake up in the morning, I want to check so bad to see what's new. And I know that there's going to be new stuff. You know, somebody probably in maybe another time zone might have wrote me an email. And if there's not new email, there's certainly something new on the news or on Twitter. I, I love Twitter. And I know that one of those things is going to have something new for me. And it's going to take very little effort for me to kind of get interested in something and feel caught up. And that feeling of caught up is kind of what I want. I want that feeling of like newness and caught up in this. And so that's what I'm going for in the morning. But if I do that, I have also recognized and I'm sure many folks can relate. If I do that in the morning, then all of a sudden I have broken. I didn't recognize I had, which was silence. When I woke up in the morning in my brain, there was like silence. It was kind of like a reset, like there's quiet. I have this chance to set my intention for the day and start doing what I want to do without reacting to what the world wants me to do. As soon as I open that email inbox, as soon as I even look at the news headlines or skim through Twitter to see what people are talking about. I'm starting to react and my attention has become plugged with, you know, Swiss cheese holes and all the foundation that I might have for my day is now a weak one. It's it's Swiss cheese. It's not concrete. It's not that solid, stable, calm base that I woke up with. And it took me a long time to even recognize that that was happening. And even though I know that that will happen. I still struggle every day to not do it. It's a it's a challenge. That's a very strong temptation. In fact, I use a software called Freedom. And freedom is software that lets you, you can actually schedule turning off your internet access. I used to use a vacation timer. I would plug my internet router into the vacation timer and just set it. So that the default, again, like I want to, as a designer, I want to control the default and I want to make the default. It's off. I don't want that to be the first thing I do. I don't even want it to be a temptation. I want to keep my sort of quiet bubble until, you know, 10 a.m., maybe noon when I've had the chance to do some work that's just all about my intention. In, in the morning. And so that's kind of my, you know, that's, that's sort of a concrete example of how I approach that every day.
1: Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all wheel drive and three row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. I think that's great. I mean, as somebody who's obviously been intimately involved in, in, you know, building the Gmail app, I think it's a great insight in how to kind of have a healthy relationship with our inbox. And, you know, there's a great tool that I use as well called Inbox When Ready, which I think is probably very similar. But, you know, it's really, really simple. It's a little button at the top of your Gmail that you can click it at any time and just show your inbox. But the default is just to hide your inbox. And so now instead of sitting down on my computer and see my inbox and suddenly get sucked into 45 minutes of email, you know, it's hidden. And I'm saying, oh, what was that project I was going to spend 45 minutes on? Okay, perfect. Now I can come back to my inbox when I'm ready to to kind of get roped into that reactive state
3: yeah, those defaults are so powerful. And the thing is that there's a lot of talk about this and there's a lot of people smarter than us. uh, I don't mean smarter than you and I, but smarter than me and John talking about, they're not smarter than you, Matt, but (laughs) smarter than me and John talking about, you know, what should the social media companies be doing and what should these big tech companies be doing and so on. And it's an important conversation to have. Our take on this is that I mean, having worked inside a lot of these companies and having friends inside the ones that I haven't, if I haven't actually worked inside them, I probably know folks who have. And they're good people. The people who work at the tech companies, kind of like me with email, like they're passionate about technology and they want to bring the future to life and they want to bring the future to their customers. And I think 99.999 times out of uh, 100, you've got folks who want to do well and they're building products that actually do the most part, improve our lives. I mean, it's the things that you can do with a smartphone are amazing. And I'm so happy to go on a run and listen to a podcast. I'm so happy to be in a foreign city and be able to navigate it with maps. It's There's all these things that are, that are really futuristic and amazing with our phones. But the problem is we have to take sort of all of it all of the time. We can complain about the tech companies and say they need to be more mindful of our attention they need to give us better defaults and we should do that we should demand better defaults that's good i believe that the tech companies will get better at this over time it's hard to know though what's the right thing for every person it's hard to know exactly how you know how much you should give the the customer control versus how much you should mandate control so our approach is to say as a consumer of these things as a as an individual you need to decide what's right for you and then you need to create your own default. So don't wait for somebody else to do it for you. Don't wait for everybody to make your life perfect for you with the tools. Make Do it now and figure out what you want now and today and start today. In some cases, it is a matter of applying tools to the, the phone or the computer, or whatever, to take control over it and mandate those defaults for yourself. In some cases, it's about using paper instead of a screen when you can. In some cases, it's about you know, just having that. That daily intention, but all of those things start to set your own intention and your own defaults ahead of what the world has sort of organically grown to, to demand of you. Which is your attention on this, your attention on that. You have to sort of make your own choices and and put those first.
2: And I think that comes back to something we we kind of touched on a moment ago, which is when the world is putting all of these demands on us. You know, especially in kind of a professional context, what are some of the strategies we can use to? to say no.
3: Yeah, saying no is super hard and I think there's good advice for saying no out there but a lot of it the the advice that I've read comes from people who are either so successful that it makes sense that they're saying no. So, you know, I've I've heard a lot of examples of like, well, here's how this like, you know, billionaire entrepreneur says no. And I'm like, well, I can't say no like that. Like people know why that person's saying no, but I can't say no to like my friends or, you know, somebody who wants to have a meeting with me or something. I can't say no in that same way because I don't have that same like like it's not obvious that I'm busy. I'm not Steven Spielberg, you know, I'm not, I'm not that busy. And and then there's another kind of saying no that's just really like kind of blunt, like being being really blunt. And that's good. It's good to be honest, but that's also hard for me. I want to be, I just, it's, I'm kind of like a little bit of a softy. Like if somebody asked me to do something, I, I want to say yes. You know, I want to, I want to be helpful. And so we talk about this a little bit in make time. And the approach that we try to use is to have a prepared statement, a prepared line that you're going to use ahead of time. And so you can you can kind of figure out what you're going to say and be prepared for how you're going to say no. And for us, it's this is something that we learned from a a friend of ours, a colleague of ours at Google. Her name is, uh, is Kristen, and she's really good at saying no, but she's she also does it in a way that is socially, I think, like, like really Really smooth. Like it, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel bad when Kristen says that she she can't come to a certain meeting or take on a project. She does it in a way that everyone respects. And she calls it a, a Sour Patch Kid. And she says the idea is that you're gonna be like when you eat a Sour Patch Kid, like if anybody's seen the the commercials for Sour Patch Kids, so the first taste is sour and then it's sweet on the inside. So it's a sour at the beginning and sweet ending. And so for Kristen, it's like you you just say like i can't do that i i've I've too many commitments right now to do that project." But what I can do is offer you this other suggestion. So I might know another person for whom this might be a good opportunity, or at the very least, I can say, this sounds like a really exciting project, and I wish you the best with it. Or if it's true that you want to work with the person again sometime in the future, you say, I'd look forward to having another chance to work with you in the future. But what's key about it is that the sweet part at the end is sincere. So if you offer something, if you offer another connection, it has to be useful. And you have to really believe that that person will be a helpful resource. Source to the person you're saying no to. And if you say that you'd like to work together again in the future, don't say it unless you mean it. But a sincere Sour Patch Kid, we think is a really good way to say no. And so you start off by saying like, I can't, I can't do this. I don't have time to do it. But you offer something else. And for me, that's using that technique has allowed me to feel a lot better about saying no. I've also found that I will when I find myself in situations where I'm in person, sometimes it's a lot harder for me in person to say no to people because all of my instincts to want to say yes are just it's just harder for me in in person. You know, I mean, it's it's tough. It's tough to say no to somebody's face. So I'll hedge and I'll say, you know, I have promised to myself that I won't commit to things in person until I've had a chance to think about it. And then I'll I'll get back to the person over email. And sometimes I'll still say yes, if it's something that I really want to do. But sometimes just creating a bit of separation is helpful. And you know who you are. If you're like me and you are, are likely to, uh, to want to please other people and say yes to them, then you want to have those strategies ready in advance so that you don't get kind of caught off guard because saying yes to something is a really effective way to not to your own priorities. It's a really effective way to have those someday projects remain someday projects. The saying yes to somebody else's project can create my uh John my co-author calls them barnacles. They're like barnacles on the hull of your of your ship and they they don't go away. Barnacles really just don't go away.
2: You know I'm a people pleaser as well and so I always have a hard time saying no to people. I love the idea of deferring sort of in-person asks to a later time because that gives you the space to really come back and you know, say no at a later date when you're not face to face with them and feel this pressure or obligation to say yes.
3: Yeah, there's also, this is one of the things we, we do in the design sprint process is try to construct a situation where a team can make a really good decision and I'll take a little random tangent for a second into the design sprint process because I think it's an important one to consider when, you're, when people are asking you to do things. And whether it's at work or in your personal life when people ask you to do things, really the reality is that you have many options with how you can spend your time. And even if you work in a very constrained environment, you still have, most of us still have some choice about how we spend our effort in, in the office, at home, wherever it might be. So you've got to, in order to make the best choices about your time, look at all of those options at once, or as many of those options as you can at once. And to use the example from the design sprint, what we found was that, and I experienced this over and over working on projects at Microsoft and Google, and I learned that this happens inside. I mean, the best startups in the world, this happens. This is just human nature. You consider solutions to problems usually one at a time somebody comes up with an idea you start talking about that idea and you say oh, okay like is that viable is that is that idea sort of good enough And a lot of whether we consider the idea is good enough might have to do with when the idea is introduced. Are we ready to act on it now? Who introduced the idea? Do we have any kind of biases about this person? Were they able to effectively give like a a verbal sales pitch for it? Or were they able to effectively put together some kind of a presentation or a, a prototype of it that shows the idea? And people have different abilities to do those things. They have different levels of credibility. And a lot of times those biases and the timing and all those things will Wrongly influence us towards making poor decision. But if you can lay all of the possible paths out at once, you make a much better decision. And there's been uh, I think a lot of studies and a lot of just smart people talking about this. A book I love on this topic is Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath, and it's just about making good decisions in in work and in life. And so one of the key things is you you got to you know sort of consider multiple options at once to make the best choice if somebody's asking you to do something, if they want you to, maybe you're being asked to take on a project at work, somebody wants you to to give a presentation, or they want you to, even even if somebody wants you to to mentor them at work, or somebody wants you to join a team, little things can quickly become these long-term ongoing commitments. And if you can take a step back and get out of that situation, and then on your own quiet time, have a moment to consider what are all the things, what are the things this competes with? And once I put this on my calendar and I see it On my calendar week after week after week, what does that actually feel like? Then you're in a much better situation to make a wise choice about what's best for you. And as it turns out, it is also a lot easier to say no over email.
2: So let's dig into that a little bit more. I love the idea of kind of creating situations where people can make really good decisions. Tell me more about how to structure those environments and kind of what some of the key factors are.
3: Yeah, sure. So to do that, I'll kind of dive in a little to the design sprint, because ultimately, that's what the design sprint became. I mean, it started out for me as a way to, I was working at Google, I had been working on this project that ultimately became Google Hangouts. And in the beginnings of that project, we went for so long, just kind of going nowhere. We were talking about these ideas, there's this notion at Google of a 20% project, or at least there used to be a a long time, but I I think it still exists and you do something in your 20% time. So 20% of your time, you could work on any project you wanted. And a lot of times cool stuff would come from that. I think that that is originally how Gmail was started somebody's 20% project. So Google Hangouts was also a 20% project in the early, early days. And, but we could, we could not get the project going and we were just working on it you know an hour here an hour there kind of talk about it or sort of make some mock-ups on the computer or do some you know a little bit of hacking here and there and and it stretched out over a couple of years and then there was this week where i was together with two other folks who were working on the project and we were in the google office in stockholm and it was in january and if you've ever been to Stockholm in January, you would know that you have no reason to want to go outside. This is really dark and cold and miserable. At any rate, we we just stayed inside for a a week and we basically cleared our schedules for a week, the three of us, and we made a prototype of the product and started being able to use it inside Google to do video meetings. And it stuck. And that was kind of this catalyst, like this moment for that project because it went from being this thing that was just kind of an idea, kind of an interesting idea to being something that people were like, could tangibly say, okay, that's what it would look like. And it was in customers' hands when our customers in that case were fellow Googlers, but it was so different than... Than what had happened the previous two years. And I thought about all the projects that I had worked on you know, building software up until that point and how there were these times when almost nothing happened, when you know you're just sort of in the normal work routine and you're, you know, you're chipping away and chipping away and chipping away. And sometimes there's churn, you get going one direction, you got to change direction later. And what happened in that week was we were focused. We were all just doing the same thing. We weren't bouncing from project A to project B to project C. We weren't switching contexts. And we had a deadline because we knew we were only going to be physically in the same place for a limited amount of time. So we got an amazing amount done. And so in the beginning with the design sprint, I just thought, if I could recreate those situations where you've got some pressure to get something done, you've got everybody focused on one thing, not dividing their attention. And you have to, for some reason, create a prototype, make a decision, make forward progress and put this thing in the hands of your customers all in one week it's actually possible to move that fast if you focus and if you know maybe if i come up with the right recipe we could do this again and again so that's where the design sprint originally came from was that idea and trying to change the way google started projects and it ended up being useful outside to teams outside of google as well but the The thing that happened over time was that process evolved into really trying to figure out how can you help a team work together in the best way? And ultimately, how can you help them make the best decision? And I think there's two big parts to making that decision well. And one of them is what I talked about a little bit, which is making sure that you're really considering opinionated, competing, conflicting solutions. So you create an environment where it's healthy to have a disagreement. Uh, it's usually uncomfortable to disagree with people. And if I disagree with someone in person, I find it uncomfortable to have that conversation. But if you disagree on paper and you make it kind of anonymous and actually in the sprints, we have every person. We don't do a group brainstorm where people shout out loud because I found those yield very shallow results. Actually, a number of studies who found this as well. If you do a group brainstorm and you compare that to individuals working on their own, the individuals will create better solutions. And that's what happens in the sprint. So every person comes up with their own solution, they they write it down in great detail on paper. So everyone's is on paper, it's kind of on a level playing field, and they're anonymous. So I can't tell whose is whose when they go up on the wall. And then you evaluate those solutions on the wall. And so a big part of it is figuring out which of those solutions do we think is the strongest. Now we've stripped away a lot of biases We run a process in the sprint to evaluate them really quickly so that to the degree we can, we mute the sort of recency bias that would happen with, you know, talking about the the one that we looked at most recently. And then we have everybody vote for the one they think is the strongest and give their, their argument for which one, which solution they believe is the strongest. But then the decision maker, there's one decision maker who actually chooses. So what we've done there is we've allowed the decision maker to hear an argument from the different experts on her team you know so the engineering expert makes a pitch for one solution maybe there's a product expert or marketing expert who makes a pitch for a different solution or maybe the same ones but ultimately the decision maker has complete control over which solutions are chosen, but that decision-maker gets to choose two or even three different solutions. You prototype all three of them, and then on Friday, you test them with with customers. And so what you've done then is to make the decision even better by saying you don't have to narrow down to just one. You can choose two or three, and we're going to give you data right away. We're going to give you some kind of really quick and dirty data about how people react to using this this product. And so the sprint effectively is this sort of supercharged decision-making tool it's very artificial and very different than the way humans normally make decisions in, in offices or in teams, which is quite, it's often just by our gut or by our emotion or by our hunches. It's a way to, to really try to perfect those hunches by really in a, in a sort of a calculated, very specific way, strip away biases and, and foster sort of a constructive disagreement.
2: I love the, the idea of kind of, Fostering, you know, conflicting opinions in a way that is is healthy, and it's kind of easy to have those disagreements without, you know, the biases and the inherent challenges when somebody's kind of pitching an idea verbally.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting thing that we want to agree with each other in person a lot of us <laughs> I think sometimes the people who do really well and they're really effective in leadership positions it's kind of because they're jerks you know they're they're willing to disagree and they're willing to to fight a little bit and that's you know i'm sure we've all had people like that in our in our lives in one way or another and and it can be really effective to disagree but for many of us it's difficult for most of us also those kinds of situations where we're talking to somebody one on one or we're in a meeting and we have a disagreement are not comfortable also we're not all equally good at having those kinds of arguments so if you're introverted and you're in a meeting where an extrovert is making a sales pitch for their idea and you know arguing down the criticisms about that idea, it can be hard to be effective in that situation, and so are just the environment of the office it favors people who are willing to argue for their opinion and who are also extroverted and are also you know have for whatever reason got this sort of people on the team have have an opinion about them that they're that they know what they're talking about you know they've they've built respect on the team one way or another and that respect is often it's for a good reason but sometimes it's not and so what I've found is that by really kind of deconstructing, what do you want to have happen? Well, what you want to have happen is you want to allow people to consider multiple approaches. An example of this is we ran a sprint with uh, with Slack. I talk about this story in the book. And... Slack was considering they were going to be running a big ad campaign, and they this was sort of early on in the history of the company. They knew that this ad campaign was a really big deal for them. Like they didn't know how if they were going to have another chance to run a big ad campaign to have as many new people coming into Slack as they would at that moment. And for them, it was a big moment because they had had a lot of a lot of like really fast growth right after like the first year that Slack was launched. But it was almost all in tech companies, and tech companies were familiar with different kinds of messaging tools. Tech companies had a lot of conversations among, you know, people would, Talk friends to friends and other companies and say hey, we're using this tool. It's really cool So the word of mouth is really strong for them, but they wanted to move beyond they didn't want to be just a tool for tech companies They wanted to move beyond that and in order to do that they were gonna have to reach new customers This ad campaign was gonna be super expensive But it gave them the chance to have new folks coming in to slack.com saying what's this thing all about? I've seen a billboard, you know, I've seen a magazine ad or a TV ad. What's this all about? And they knew it was going to be tough to explain Slack to those folks because Slack is the kind of thing, if if you're listening, if you've used Slack at your office, it, it doesn't really work unless you're using it with your whole team. Like if your whole team's already using it, then it kind of makes sense what the advantages might be over email. But if you're not, if you're just reading about it, it's a little hard to get. So what they decided to do in their sprint, they had ultimately, they chose two competing solutions. So you can imagine first, there's a team of like six people, seven people in the room, and they each come up with their own solution for how this should be solved. And one of those solutions is the CEO's favorite solution. And the CEO is a super smart guy, this guy Stuart Butterfield. He founded Flickr, so you guys might know Flickr, the photo sharing app. And then he he also founded Slack, and he's got great product sense. And he had this idea that was super clever. Actually, his idea was what we're going to do to simulate having the experience of using Slack is we're going to take a bunch of bots, we're going to program bots to act like they're a team. And you'll get dropped into Slack with these bots and they're going to, you know, share files with you and talk about, you know, that meeting that we just had and invite you to lunch, just as if this was a real team operating inside Slack. Super smart idea, super ambitious. And so that was one of the solutions. And then there's these other competing solutions of the way other people imagined kind of solving this problem of explaining Slack to these People who are coming in after seeing like a, a magazine ad for it. And in their spread, what they're able to do is not just have a conversation about What's the smartest idea? What's our best hunch? Not just have a conversation that's based on, well, Stuart says we should do this, so we should probably do this or try to have like a faction of people. Sort of, I mean, and I'm just talking about what's happened in my experience. Like a lot of times I, if I disagreed with a leader, I might try to get other people on my side or try to like, as a designer, make like a really nice looking high fidelity design of my solution and propose that as kind of this high stakes Hail Mary to change course. There's all these kind of weird political things that might happen. Happen, or we might just do what the CEO suggested. I mean, any of those things are possible, but in the Sprint what we try to do is say, okay, really quickly we're going to put some detail behind a bunch of competing solutions, one from each person, and then we're going to evaluate those without knowing whose is whose, although we can probably guess, You know, we, we know the, the CEO's favorite idea, like we've talked about that before, so we'll recognize it on the wall and then the ceo decides and in this case what happened is they decided to choose that idea of the team of bots that really that really clever idea of having the bots talk to you and simulate what it's like to use slack and then a, a really somebody had done this really detailed straightforward like little speech bubbles that came up and kind of just told you what the key features of slack were so you would you would go into slack and it would just be like these little like hey this is here's the channels and you can search through all this history across all of everybody in the company, things like that. And they prototype those two things and they built realistic prototypes of those two. And so for the prototype of the bot team, they had people, in the sprint, actually pretending to be bots, you know, typing not too intelligent messages to each other to test customer who came in. And then they, they mocked up what the other one would look like in a very realistic way and then showed it to customers as if they were two finished products. This is all in the space of a week. So they've gone from like zero to on Friday testing this with customers. And it turned out actually that the CEO's idea was super confusing to people. People who were in that simulation were like, "What is going on? Like, why, I, I, why is that person I don't really know, or is it a robot, or is it the computer like talking to me? I don't want to go to lunch with the bot. Like, it just didn't make sense. It was an idea that sounded brilliant on the whiteboard and just did not translate to real life, even though it was a really faithful, realistic." Simulation of what that that solution would look like. But it turned out that the very straightforward, well written, very detailed idea for those speech bubbles worked great. You know, the the messages that person had chosen worked great. Now, that's the kind of solution that didn't sound very good in the abstract didn't sound very creative. It didn't sound very unique. It wasn't flashy, but it worked really well. And it was only through having the chance to put detail behind that disagreement and not just have a verbal disagreement. It was only through kind of anonymizing the solution so we didn't know, like, whose this was. And and also through having the chance to not commit immediately to one solution but keep multiple solutions alive, That they were able to make what turned out to be the best choice. And so that's kind of what, like, in great detail, what that sort of – really structured, active, and constructive disagreement can look like. And it doesn't look like disagreement. I mean, that actually feels like a process. It feels like a process of elimination. You know, it's like a really healthy process. But effectively, it's an argument. It's a really good, really detailed argument and an argument with a great result.
2: That's a great example and, and really showcases why it's so important to create the kind of environments that allow that conversation to happen. I'm curious for somebody who's listening and kind of wants to concretely implement some of the themes and ideas we've talked about today, what would be kind of a starting point or an action item that you would give them to begin sort of implementing some of the things we've talked about?
3: Well the the obvious one and this is very self-serving, but both of the the books, the new one and sprint, so sprint and make time, and you can find both of them, you know, on Amazon or wherever you wherever you shop for books, although you have to pre-order make time. They're both designed to be very actually actionable. So one thing that I've struggled with in reading books that had interesting ideas over the years is how I put them into practice. And so both of those books are almost like cookbooks. They're really meant to be DIY guides for doing the things that that we think will help. But if you wanted to just take one step towards changing what you were doing in your daily life or at work, a step the first step I would recommend people take Towards doing a sprint is to do something called a lightning decision jam and this I actually didn't come up with this this is there's a a consulting agency in Berlin called AJ and smart who have converted their whole business actually to running they just run design sprints now and they have an amazing list of clients they work with Lufthansa and Adidas and Lego just amazing companies. And one of the things that they developed is this 30-minute, 60-minute process for making a decision. And it kind of is a microcosm of the things you would do in a design sprint. So if you search for Lightning Decision Jam, either on YouTube or on Google, you're going to come up with a with a post or this video about how to do it. And it's quite easy to do. It's so much better than the way most meetings are typically run. It's just a very simple recipe for a meeting. That's a great way to start with your way towards running a design sprint at the office, just kind of introduces those ideas. And then the thing I would suggest for people who are interested in the make time idea, and maybe you're waiting, the book comes out September 25th. So if you're listening before then, and the book's not out yet, uh, I would recommend trying a couple things. So the first one is to think about what is your distraction kryptonite? What's the one thing for you that just gets you? And for me, it's email. For some people, it's Facebook. For some people, you know, it might be Instagram, it could be Twitter, it could be all kinds of different things, maybe Snapchat. Maybe it's the news. But what's just the one thing? Like You don't have to change your life. What's the one thing that you feel like when you look at it, you feel regret? When you look at it on your phone, maybe you feel regret. You feel like you, you didn't spend that time well. And delete it and go without it for 24 hours or go without it for a week but make a decision about how long you're going to go without it and delete the app you know log off maybe even you know if it's if you're if you're feeling really bad about it delete your account but you can make a choice to go away from it for a day or a week and see what happens to your head and i think that's a powerful thing that's been really powerful for me the other thing i'd suggest is just today think about what's the one most important thing i'm going to do today write it down on a piece of paper, put it on your desk or on, you know, if it's on a sticky note, stick it to your phone or something and try to do that one thing by the end of the day and and see how that feels. And, you know, if that feels good, do it again tomorrow. I think those simple little kinds of changes like that can have a profound difference. And one of the philosophies that runs through all of the work I've done and the experiments I've run on myself and on these unwitting uh, companies that had to come in and do design sprints on me with me, is that we're actually often quite close to things working beautifully. We're often quite close to a situation where we can do the projects we want to do, be present with the people who we want to be present with, make time for the things that matter the most to us. And it's often a small shift that will get you there. And it may not have to transform your life. It might be a really small thing that gets you on that path. So, yeah, give that a shot. And where can listeners find you and, and, and your work online? You can find me at jakeknapp.com. And despite all my talk about distraction, I am on Twitter at Jake K. The Make Time book is available at maketimebook.com. And you can find more about Sprint on thesprintbook.com.
2: Well, Jake, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all this knowledge. Obviously, you have a tremendous amount of experience creating and, and cultivating these environments where people can be more productive and effective. So, thank you so much for sharing all that wisdom with us.
3: Oh, my pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me on and for listening to me ramble. I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun.
2: Thank you so much for listening to the science of success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email.